Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I'm grateful to be here as always. I don't know how many times I've been privileged to stand at this pulpit, but uh, dozens of times, and each time I regard it as a privilege and hope to be able to rise to the occasion. They've been welcomed formally, President Sister Bateman, but I want to add my welcome to them as they assume their duties. I'm so grateful, as you'll hear me say in the text of this speech, or something that's a part of mortality, which we sometimes overlook, and that is the intertwinings of our lives. The ways in which the Lord causes these intersections to occur and then to resume. And some here have heard me say that one of the reasons we love each other so much in the kingdom is that our friendships are not friendships of initiation at all, but indeed our friendships of resumption. And I thought I'd mention with regard to President Sister Bateman the intersecting of our lives. It's as though they are intersecting periodically beginning in 1975 when then President Oaks asked if I would do what I could to influence Dr. Merrill Bateman to take a deanship at the Brigham Young University. I found him in Europe. He was with an international corporation and and, uh, told him it wasn't a church call but that we'd be blessed if he'd accept it, which he did. And he has been such a great friend ever since. And then to be with him and Sister Bateman several times in Japan as they presided over the Asian North area, more intersectings of our lives. And then to watch him perform so well as presiding bishop of the church. In the parlance of management, he is a quick study and does things so well so quickly. And he has the capacity to touch people deeply and quickly. And I'm grateful for the intertwinings of our lives. I could do the same with Elder Eyring. The the manner in which our lives have intersected has been such a great blessing to me. And with Bruce Hafen and so many more. It's a marvelous thing that the Lord gives us these experiences, and you have them as well as I, of course. And it shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters, that Heavenly Father brings about these intersectings and intertwinings of our lives. So often after something's over, we'll say, little did I realize, or I had no way of knowing that these intersectings should occur. But why should we be surprised? Each of us has circles of friendships, and within those is the portion of the human family that God has given us to love, to serve, and to learn from. And I feel so blessed to have learned from the Irings and the Batemans and the Hafens and so many others who are here today on the stand and in the audiences. One of the things I've found is that within each of our circles of friendship, there lie many opportunities to love, to serve, and to be taught. And indeed, you could adapt a a scriptural phrase that there are enough and to spare. None of us ever quite fully utilizes the allocation of people, all of whom lie within our circles of friendship, if we would but take advantage of it. You and I call these intersectings coincidence. And that's all right for mortals to use that kind of language. But coincidence is not an appropriate word for an omniscient God. He doesn't do things by coincidence. 
but instead by divine design. I'm one of those who likes uh, happy intersectings. <clears throat> there are intersectings that are not happy. I'm one of those who likes happy ironies in life. I mention one of these to you now that you probably do not know of. I did not know until recently. <clears throat> in 1855, Abraham Lincoln was then a lawyer in Illinois. He'd been asked to participate in a patent infringement case involving McCormick, the inventor of the Reaper. Lincoln had been given a $400 retainer. It was told he might actually argue the case at the hearing. So he studied hard, went to Cincinnati for the trial, but the lead lawyer in the case, a man named Edwin M. Stanton, was a brilliant Pittsburgh lawyer. And Stanton said of Lincoln, why did you bring that long-armed ape here? He does not know anything and can do you no good. Lincoln stayed at the same hotel as Stanton and other attorneys, <clears throat> but he was never asked to eat with them, never asked to confer with them. They didn't even really talk to him. Lincoln went home feeling insulted and, quote, roughly handled by that man, Stanton. The years tumbled on, as you know, and later Stanton was to join the cabinet of the newly elected president, Abraham Lincoln. There were difficulties of views, but Stanton came to deeply admire Abraham Lincoln. After Lincoln's assassination, when they stood about his bed, Lincoln was in the process of dying. <clears throat> Stanton, who had once described Lincoln as an ape, paid this tribute to his fallen chief. With a slow and measured movement, Stanton's right arm extended fully as if in salute. He raised his hat and placed it for an instance on his head. And then, in the same deliberate manner, Stanton removed it. Now, Stanton said, Lincoln belongs to the ages. Would that all relationships could have that kind of resolution and ending. Now, my focus today <clears throat> will be on the joys and advantages of gospel living, including these intertwinings. I do that, brothers and sisters, because sometimes at your ages, we in the church may seem to emphasize the stern or seemingly stern gospel requirements without consistently and helpfully identifying the joys and the blessings and the advantages of gospel living, both here and now and in the there and then. As I do this, I do not mean to imply that the pursuit of terrestrial objectives is joyless. We can, in pursuing terrestrial objectives, have joy for a season. The commandments of men, though lesser commandments, may at times be aligned with some of the values and principles of God. But the commandments of men are not going to bring us full joy when we comply with them. In fact, we can't expect to have a fullness of joy in this life until, as the scriptures inform us, the body and spirit are inseparably connected. But we can have much joy and much happiness in life. In fact, God is delighted when his children keep commandments because then his children are truly happy and he wants us to be happy. 
After all, his plan is called the plan of happiness. Conversely, on occasion, God weeps over the needless suffering of his children. The joys that might have been for ancient Israel, for instance, evoked Jesus' wrenching lamentation, O Jerusalem. He offered to ancient Israel more than they were prepared to claim because they were content to live far below their privileges. So as we speak of joy, it's important for us to realize what a wise man said, God is serious about joy. And indeed, this is the essence of what he would have for us. I'm going to begin a little differently by asking you a rhetorical question. What are you actually and specifically deprived of by serious gospel living? Honor these uh, several examples. By complying with the revealed word of wisdom, you are much more likely to, to be deprived of lung cancer and surely of becoming an alcoholic. You are much more likely to miss out on AIDS if you keep the seventh commandment and refuse to use drugs. Before you die, my young brothers and sisters, you will thank Heavenly Father many times for the advantages of abstinence. Regarding certain destructive things, abstinence is so much easier than moderation. Meanwhile, you will see those about you who are surfing life's pleasures indulgently. They will eventually crash against the reefs of reality. You will also be deprived of being ignorant by responding to the strong gospel emphasis on education. You will be deprived of that large dose of human despair, which cometh of iniquity. You will also miss out on the exhausting calisthenics of trying to mold a meaningful morality by using the Play-Doh of permissiveness. It just won't work. Yes, you will be tested and puzzled, <clears throat> but because of your faith in God's plan of salvation, you will thereby be deprived of cynicism, that corrosive emotion that relentlessly expresses itself in a hundred different ways. By having faith in Heavenly Father's plan of salvation, you will be inspired not only to keep the law of chastity, but you'll be able to cope with adversity. Obviously, you could add many more examples of what seem to be deprivations, which are great benefactions, greater than you can now fully appreciate. I depart from my text to give you an example <clears throat> of the blessings that flow from simple faith in the plan of salvation. About three and a half years ago, <clears throat> a young woman, I would judge her to be about 40, came to my office and asked if she could visit with me uh, something I'd written apparently had helped her, and she wondered if she could have time. As the conversation began, she said to me that uh, her husband had just died of a brain tumor, leaving her with four children. I at once began to bestow uh, expressions of sympathy, and she, being strong, said, No, that's not a problem, Brother Maxwell. I can handle it. But I've just learned that I, too, have cancer, and I want to know what's going to happen to those four children. A woman of great faith, strong intellectually, strong spiritually, 
Sister Maxwell and I felt it a great privilege to be in touch with her from time to time in the intervening several years in which the Lord gave her some prolongation of her time for the preparation of those four children. Her name is Vicki Nichols. Two days before she died, I called her in Spokane. By now, her voice uh, was very weak. And then she said to me, you'll understand how wrenching the prospect is of my leaving the four children, the kind of feelings that only a mother could have. And then, because she understands the plan of salvation, Vicki said, Brother Maxwell, can I tell you something? I am torn at the prospect of prolonged separation from my children, but I want you to know that I have, nevertheless, a sense of anticipation and excitement about going through the veil of death. It was a privilege to speak at her funeral. The oldest of her children is 15, <clears throat> a wonderful daughter. The day after she died, the daughter gathered together her three siblings, and they had their scriptures. And just the four of them talked about the gospel and the plan of salvation. There is no adversity that can set aside what we know and have faith in as God's plan of salvation. And it is an immense blessing to know about it and to believe in it and more to have faith in it. We are sometimes chided as a people because we can't do certain things that other people do. This is the abstention referred to already. A devout Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, was once chided because he abstained from eating pork. And he turned the tables on his inquirers and said, isn't it incredible? There are five billion people on this planet, and God cares what I have for lunch. With your knowledge of the expansive plan of salvation, you could say, yes, the God of worlds without numbers cares about what each of us on this tiny planet says and does, including how we treat our parents, our friends, our roommates. A second major point about joy. Joy is obviously of a higher order than mere pleasure. Pleasure is perishable. It has a short shelf life. Mere pleasure is not lasting, brothers and sisters, because it is constantly feeding on itself. Thus, the appetites of the natural man, though frequently fed, are never filled. For instance, even as gluttony digests its latest glob, it begins anticipating its next meal. The same pattern prevails with regard to the praise of men, with regard to lust and greed. Strange as it seems, so far as the carnal pleasures are concerned, their very consumption ensures the cancellation of their satisfaction. They just do not last. Joy, on the other hand, is lasting. It involves the things that really matter, such as being forgiven and forgiving another. One true test of ultimate value attached to any benefit we are given is surely whether or not it is lasting. 
of so many human endeavors, even those celebrated with great excitement, the child's question in one of Southey's poems stands as a stark reminder, quote, but what good came of it at last? That is not a criterion that the things of the flesh can respond to. No wonder, therefore, the pleasurable things of the day and the things of the moment, such as having political power and social sway, are so fleeting because they're unrelated to true joy and the everlasting things. Mere popularity, for instance, is not only transitory, it can actually be dangerous. The wise present and Eldon Tanner cautioned us, quote, this craving for praise and popularity too often controls actions, and as people succumb, they find themselves bending their character when they think they are only taking a bow. A wise and special man. Sometimes, therefore, it's wrong to belong. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The synagogue, of course, is a metaphor for any lesser mortal belonging which can divert or dilute our efforts to first build up the kingdom of God. I like the way Malcolm Muggeridge put it. Now, he said, the prospect of death overshadows all others for me. I am like a man on a sea voyage nearing his destination. When I embarked, I worried about having a cabin with a porthole and whether I should be asked to sit at the captain's table. Who were the more attractive and important passengers? All such considerations become pointless because now I shall soon be disembarking. One of the great blessings the gospel gives us is the lens through which we can see proportionality, the perspective that comes from its marvelous and overarching principles. For some reason, the last month or so, <clears throat> my mind has turned to a colleague of many years ago at the University of Utah. Dr. Reed Merrill was a distinguished educational psychologist. He had <clears throat> done pioneering work in the process of licensure and other things associated with clinical psychology and educational psychology. However, he'd been inactive, and I guess the way I would put it, he had been inattentive to spiritual things. A good person. And then in the early 1980s, he was stirred spiritually by the Lord. I could see it when he came to visit me twice. He wrote two powerful letters comparing the emptiness of his secular discipline with the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It meant a lot because it came from a man of unquestioned intellect and integrity. Other catalytic things were happening, unbeknownst to me, including his daughter's service on a mission, to say nothing of a wonderful wife. Reed called me uh, several months before his daughter's seating after her mission, asked if I would perform it. And I said I'd be delighted to do 
that. I think I had a trip intervening overseas, but said, Reed, will you be there? With his typical integrity, he said, Neil, you know me well enough to know I won't be there unless I'm fully entitled and fully worthy to be there. When the morning came for the seating in the Salt Lake Temple, I waited with particular anticipation. Then Reed came down the corridor of the temple. We embraced, and he said, Neil, I made it. I've come home. Subsequently, he taught high priest groups and gospel doctrine classes. It was a, a, a renaissance of discovery in his life. It was a marvelous thing to see. And he did all of that until he died several years later. It's a marvelous thing when anybody comes home. And when we play even a small part, these things give us joy. The carnal pleasures cannot deliver. In fact, there is a scripture in the Book of Mormon, I'm sure you've noticed, that the adversary lets down his disciples at the last day. He can't deliver. Jesus is the great deliverer. Yesterday, when I reviewed my handwritten notes, they were 10 years ago at Reed's funeral. It included significantly words of gratitude for what I called back then the intersections of our lives, Reed's and mine. The most important thing to be said about Reed Merrill, that when he departed from this life, he exited in spiritual crescendo. These are the things that matter and bring joy. I mention all of this precedent to speaking to you about the natural human desire you have to belong and for people to notice and care about you. And my plea is not to go against that basic fundamental need because it's there for a reason, but instead to ask you to distinguish between belonging in a proximate way and belonging in an ultimate way. One can belong to a churning, changing group in an airport transit lounge. It's not belonging. One can begin to sense that he or she belongs to God and that we are part of something that is very, very special and very, very large. And another great blessing that comes from the gospel is it gives us perspective. If you and I were left to draw conclusions and generalizations from our small personal database, we couldn't be very wise, but we can access the divine database through the scriptures and prophetic utterances, and then we have perspective. Otherwise, our generalizations won't be worth much more than the one I now give you. Quote, all Indians walk single file. At least the one I saw did. We would end up being so provincial and so parochial. I love these lines from G.K. Chesterton, the brilliant Catholic writer. How much larger your life would be if you could become smaller in it. Then you would begin to be interested in others. You would break out of this tiny theater in which your own little plot is always being played. And you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. The gospel tells us who those splendid strangers are. It gives us a sense, not only the immensity and the vastness of God's work, but the great personalness of his work as well. 
since it does matter that we feel a sense of belonging and that we be noticed, one of the great things you and I can do for family and friends is to contribute to their storehouses of self-esteem regularly by giving deserved and specific commendations and encouragement. The other thing we can do when we see the chaff in the lives of others as compared with the wheat, the kernel of their personality, is with the breath of kindness, blow the chaff away. Among your most cherished and forever friends will be those you will bring into the church and those whom you will reactivate over the years. I will tell you a story in closing my remarks in a few minutes. It includes a very special young mother. This young mother is one whom our youngest daughter, Jane, who is here today, had a part in bringing into the church about 20 years ago. What's interesting about joy is that it has a way to renew itself and the ripple effect is constant and is ever emanating from what to us may have seemed to have been a small thing and it simply has a life and a momentum of its own. Another great advantage of joy contrasted with pleasure is that joy overrides routine, which otherwise could make us bored. We don't know, for instance, how many times Heavenly Father has been through the plan of salvation before with other of his children before our particular sequence on this planet. He even hints at the repetitiveness of his redemption when he says, my course is one eternal round. Yet God has never bored by what to us might seem mere routine. Why? Because of his perfect love for his children. What he calls my work and my glory brings abundant and pure joy. Therefore, because God loves us, he seeks with such vigor and long-suffering to separate us from our sins, which he hates. And that process of separation is where much of the pain and suffering must be born. But it is a necessary thing if we would share in his ultimate joy. Fascinating thing about joy and love that you're surely familiar with is we enlarge our capacity to love. Other people become real individuals, not merely functions. Gospel duties cease to be mere routine and become instead doors to delight. Every doctrine of the gospel is a door to delight, which when open exposes us to a vista of things we have not yet fully comprehended. I love Brigham Young. I'm so grateful this university bears his name. Hear what he says about love. There is one virtue, attribute, or principle which if cherished and practiced by the saints would prove salvation to thousands upon thousands. I allude to charity or love from which proceed forgiveness, long-suffering, kindness, and patience. Marvelous insight. Charity undergirds, it initiates all the other spiritual qualities in the same way that courage sustains these qualities at the testing point. There was a time, however, in the earlier life of Brigham Young when he was not so insightful or articulate. Before he joined the church in the late 1820s, 
untouched by the restored gospel, Brigham was apparently somewhat discouraged about life. As a young man, he approved, uh, disapproved of much of what he saw in the world, and he wondered what life held for him. And then his loving brother Phineas gave Brigham some prescient counsel. Quote, hang on, Brigham, for I know the Lord is a going to give us and do something for us. Did he ever? And the rest is Moses-like history. And in the process of his personal development from being a discouraged young man to a modern Moses, Brigham had to be patient and submissive. And once he had done that, then he began to give us insights that are stunning, as the one I shall now read to you. He said, as if speaking to each of us here today, when the Latter-day Saints make up their minds to endure for the kingdom of God's sake, whatsoever shall come, whether poverty or riches, whether sickness or to be driven by mods, mobs, they will say, it is all right, and they will honor the hand of the Lord in it and in all things, and serve him to the end of their lives according to the best of their ability. If you have not made up your minds for this, the quicker you do so, the better. You can see the soul enlarged without hypocrisy in Brigham Young, the intellectual stretching, the spiritual stretching, and the powerful insights he had, which he shares so generously with us. And it means, in effect, that Brigham Young's joy was not at the mercy of men or circumstance. And it means, likewise, you and I need to be able to utter those words, it is all right. Even when we're confronted with things we cannot fully explain or understand, to know that God does and that he loves us. And Brigham helps us to appreciate that. If we don't do it, we'll be too much at the mercy of our moods too much at the mercy of circumstances. Another thing about joy <clears throat> is it not only helps us do our gospel duties, but joy increases our individuality more than we realize. It's sinners who have such a stale sameness about them. Righteousness lends itself to individuality. Think in contrast of poor Lemuel who hearkened unto Laman. He was Laman's satellite. One wonders if poor Lemuel ever had any thoughts of his own. But as we see righteousness infused in someone like Brigham Young or Eliza Snow, then there is a flowering of individuality, immense use of talents and integrity. But it means we have to be patient. We have to educate our desires. As President Joseph F. Smith said, God's ways of educating our desires are, of course, always the most perfect. And what is God's way? Everywhere in nature we are taught the lessons of patience and waiting. We want things a long time before we get them. And the fact that we wanted them a long time makes them all the more precious when they come. In nature we have our seed time and harvest. And if children were taught that the desires that they sow may be reaped by and by through patience and labor, they will learn to appreciate whenever a long-looked-for goal has been reached. Nature resists us and keeps admonishing us to wait. Indeed, we are compelled to wait. Our patience, brothers and sisters, is the flip side of God's long-suffering. 
they go together. And they were in such a meld in the life of Brigham Young. And the more our desires, therefore, become like the Lord's, the greater will be our joy. We will also avoid, through duty and joy, the problem Paul cited of members of the church who fainted in their minds and grew weary. We have a marvelous promise when we get weary, intellectually and otherwise. It is in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it says, If we are faithful and we will share the gospel, we shall not be weary in mind. That is a great blessing. We avoid weariness. We avoid boredom among the many advantages of the gospel. When Nephi, too, was reactivating people, he was commended for his unweariness. But his unweariness reflected the joy he had in the labor that he was doing, which was so significant. As Nephi, too, regenerated others, he renewed himself. Likewise, when you and I extend empathy to someone else, we are emancipated from the full weight of our own cares, and our souls are enlarged without hypocrisy. So Heavenly Father is anxious to give us all that he has. He delights to honor his commandment keepers, but he can only give us blessings based upon obedience to the conditions and principles upon which they're predicated. One way of looking at the thou shalt not commandments, therefore, is that these are prohibitions which help us avoid misery by turning us away from that which is wrong. Once we become settled in terms of the direction in which we face, and once the celestial sins are left behind, the focus then falls upon the sins of omission, which when we commit them, rob us therefore of joy. Our Heavenly Father accentuates the development, therefore, of what are presently neglected taste buds of the soul and just as importantly, taste buds that may have been burned over by sin. He desires that we regenerate these and put them into operation because they will give us joy. The other thing he does <clears throat> is to emancipate us from our provinciality as noted earlier, and then to use the prophetic words of scripture, we consider things that we've never considered before. The emancipation that gives us this marvelous perspective. As I've tried to describe, <clears throat> without being articulate as I would like to be, this sense of the marvelous way in which the gospel creates this excitement in us and we do not grow weary, I would read these lines to you. No wonder, given its intellectual expansiveness, that we are still inventorying the harvest basket of the Restoration, having dashed about the wonder-filled landscape of the Restoration, exclaiming and observing, it should not surprise us if some of our first impressions prove to be more childish than definitive. Brushing against such tall timber, the scent of pine is inevitably upon us. Our pockets are filled with souvenir cones and colorful rocks, and we are filled with childish glee. There is no way to grasp it all. Little wonder some of us mistake a particular tree for the whole of the forest, or that in our exclamations there are some unintended exaggerations. We have seen far too much to describe. Indeed, we cannot speak the smallest part which we feel.
this then is a, an inadequate way of saying to you how I feel about the excitement and the expansiveness of the gospel and the joy that it brings. Such individuals are becoming the men and women of Christ. And you are in that process. Heavenly Father doesn't want us as his spirit sons and daughters to be mere automatons, dutifully jumping over what seem to be arbitrary hurdles. Instead, he wants us, his children, empowered to choose for ourselves to choose joy instead of misery. And joy will come in a thousand ways. When we see a relationship mended or enriched between spouses and siblings and friends, the Apostle John understood all this when he wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Children who walk in truth can access the Spirit, can receive personal revelation. I pause now in closing <clears throat> to tell you of this other experience, illustrative of the principle just given. In 3 Nephi chapter 26, verse 14, meek Jesus, the resurrected Lord of the universe, lest the children of the group he was with teach their parents greater things than he, Jesus, had taught their parents through the process of revelation. It is a marvelous, marvelous verse. I hope you will read it. Now, may I say to you, this process continues with us even today. About a year ago, Dan and Nan Barker in Arizona, they'd been blessed to adopt four children, feel so grateful for those children, had their little three-year-old boy say, Mommy, there's another little girl who is supposed to come to our family. And the mother understandably said, we, we're so blessed to have you, I don't think so. Yes, she has dark hair and dark eyes, and she lives a long way from here. How do you know this? Jesus told me, upstairs. And the mother said, we don't have any upstairs, son. But the parents being taught by the child then got in touch with an international adoption agency. And several months ago, Sister Maxwell and I were privileged to be in the seating room of a Salt Lake, of the Salt Lake Temple. And there, sealed, to Nan and Dan Barker was a little girl with dark hair and dark eyes from Kazakhstan in the former Soviet Union. This is one of the great realities of gospel living and so productive of joy. I am not surprised that Brigham Young would say, if you want to enjoy exquisitely, become a Latter-day Saint and then live the doctrines of Jesus Christ. The phrase alive in Christ describes individuals whose aliveness is enhanced by righteousness. We are the most joyful when we're the most alive. And Jesus, because he was the most empathetic, most loving, most forgiving, he was also the most appreciative individual to ever lived on this planet, has a perfect fullness of joy. And no wonder he asks us, what manner of men and women ought you to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. He wants us to have that kind of joy. 
No wonder his lamentation, O Jerusalem, was so stark and sad. When we reach a point of consecration, our afflictions will be swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Doesn't mean we won't have them, but they will be put in a perspective that permits us to deal with them. And then our pursuit of joy is such that with each increasing measure of righteousness, we will experience one more drop of delight, one after another, until, in the words of a prophet, our hearts are brim with joy, and at last the cup runs over. May we be committed to be alive in Christ, even in the turbulent last days in which you will live. For indeed, whatsoever afflictions we may have, they can be swallowed up in the joy of Christ. And we can say with Brigham Young, of things that perplex us and vex us, beyond our capacity to resolve at times, it's all right. And acknowledge the hand of God, for his hand is a loving hand stretched out to lead us, if we will, into a fullness of joy of which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.